It is so good to be back with you at the Oldham Lane Church. Uh, I've enjoyed the visits that I've made here previously, and it has been a few years. I can't remember exactly how many, uh, but I was thrilled when Chris contacted me back earlier this year about making a, a return visit. It's, it's nice to be invited uh, places to speak. It's much nicer to be invited back to speak. And so thank you for, for that uh, confidence and uh, the, the comfort that that brings me. I have so much respect and appreciation and, and admiration for Chris and his family, uh, such uh, passionate servants of the Lord, so gifted, so talented, and I'm appreciative of their long-term ministry with you here for everything that this congregation does, not only locally, but around the world. Chris is speaking elsewhere tonight, but I don't think he's gone too far away, so I'm looking forward to meeting up with him after the service here tonight just to catch up on life and faith and family and ministry and just a long overdue visit. I look forward to that very, very much. Uh, the power of one, I, I love your theme this summer based on and built out of the text of Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. I therefore, this is Paul writing to Christians in Ephesus, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he gives us the key, and I'm sure others are going to address this, unity, uh, oneness, togetherness, commonality, a, a sense of a single purpose and single mind and single cause doesn't happen without the right attitude, without the right heart, and without the right intention. And so he gives us the recipe for that. It's going to take all humility and gentleness. It's going to take patience. It's going to take bearing with one another in love eager to maintain, desirous to maintain, intentional about maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then these seven incredible statements of unity. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in you all. So tonight, one God. To an assembly like yourselves at seven o'clock on a Wednesday night in Abilene, Texas, in a facility, the sign of which says Oldham Lane Church of Christ, I don't think I'm going to need to expend a lot of energy and effort or provide a mountain of evidence to you tonight to try and convince you that contrary to atheism, uh, there is indeed a God or that contrary to agnosticism, we can confidently be sure in the fact of his existence, or that over and against polytheistic systems of belief, there is only one God. I don't think I have to burn a lot of energy doing that tonight. I don't think you would be in this place at this time if you didn't believe that there is one God. The concept of one God is foundational to our faith. But brothers and sisters, I want to remind you tonight that it is indeed by faith that we accept and believe this truth. The faith that we have is a reasoned faith. It's a rational faith. It's an evidenced faith. But at the end of the day, church, it's still faith. We choose to believe. We weigh the evidence. We consider the alternatives. We assess those alternatives. And you have chosen faith. And you don't have to look far 
to be reminded that there are multitudes of other people in this world that look at the very same evidence and reach an entirely different conclusion. They shake their heads, they look at what we look at, they assess what we assess, and they shake their heads and they harden their hearts and they scoff in dismissive derision at the very notion of God. But we believe. We choose faith. We believe that God is one. Just as our earliest spiritual forefathers and mothers in Israel believed that God is one. That was foundational to their faith. Deuteronomy 6.4, Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is recited still twice a day by observant Jews all over the globe. They begin the recitation of Deuteronomy 6 and two other passages collectively referred to as the Shema, that verb for here, foundational to their faith, that Yahweh is one. There is only one God. And that's going to be reiterated throughout Old Testament Scripture. Isaiah 45, 5, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. And you would expect that to be foundational. You would expect that to be a root out of which revelation in the New Testament would grow and would occasionally be reiterated. So we have familiar passages like James 2.19. You believe that God is one? You believe there's one God? You do well. But before we, we tear a rotator cuff, patting ourselves on the back, and congratulating ourselves for arriving at a, at a monotheistic conclusion, he reminds us that's demon-level faith. That's entry-level faith. Even the demons acknowledge who God is and his power. They're obviously aware of their eternal fate. I haven't counted them up, but I would imagine that there are more explicit confessions of Jesus as the Son of God and the Holy One of God made by demons in the Gospels than there are by humans. Every time he encounters a demon, there's no question. There's no debate. There's no discussion. Uh, we know who you are, the demons will say. You're the Holy One of God. The demons acknowledge uh, the, the oneness of the divine nature. So with that as common ground, with that as universally accepted truth among us, I want to move beyond the basic fact and truth of God's oneness to consider the marvel of His oneness and the majesty of His oneness and to maintain the mystery of His oneness, lest we think we have Him boxed, lest we think we have Him labeled and put on a shelf by our human understanding and our human knowledge. God's oneness is like no other oneness. God's unity is like no other unity that we have ever encountered. God's unity is complex and diverse. And we don't get 26 verses into Scripture before we encounter that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then the one God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The one God, 26 verses into Old Testament Scripture, says, let us make man in our image. 
after our likeness. Much more subtly, you run into it in the second verse of Genesis. Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's going to have to be fleshed out much later in our understanding. But Genesis 1-26 lets us know that the one true God of heaven, though He is one, His, His, um, His unity is magnificent. There is a mystery about His oneness. There is a complexity about His oneness. He exists as an eternal divine fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's a challenging concept to our finite understanding. But if, if I can accomplish just a few things tonight, one of them would be to, to remind us that that is more than okay. The fact that we can't fully wrap, around, uh, wrap our brains around that shouldn't be a cause of frustration to us. It shouldn't discourage us. It definitely shouldn't surprise us. Because the one about whom we are speaking tonight is the infinite, sovereign, omniscient, almighty God whose thoughts and ways are as far beyond our thoughts and ways as the heavens are above the earth, according to Isaiah chapter 55, verse 9. We can speak biblically about God, and I want to make sure we do that tonight. And we can speak truthfully about God, and I want to make sure we do that tonight. But we can never speak adequately of Him. We can never speak comprehensively about Him, or exhaustively, or categorically. Truth, though we may possess, we must never think that we have mastered the mystery of God, as if His nature could be fully contained within our understanding of Him, or limited to our commentary about Him, or reduced to a set of bullet points. Uh, again, like somehow we, we could package him and label him and put him on a shelf as if we have fully explained him. If we could fully comprehend God and figure him out as easily as we could figure out a seatbelt, what kind of God w would that be? I'm convinced that you could take a person from a developing country who's, who's never been in an automobile before, put them in there, and if you speak the, the language of their nation, their, their native tongue, and tell them to put on their seatbelt, I think it's only a matter of moments before they figure it out. If seatbelt in that language sounds anything like belt in their language, they're going to see this strap, they're going to see the little clip on the end of it, they're going to see the receptacle and the shape of it, and they'll have it figured out in short order. Uh, a few of you may know that, that Kim and I, um, we have a daughter who's almost 29, married, lives in Amarillo. And we have a son, Coleman, who's 26, lives with, uh, with us. Uh, he's a special needs child. He has a genetic syndrome called Dubowitz syndrome. Uh, he also has autism. He's nonverbal. He's a lamb. He, he is uh, the sweetest, kindest, gentlest. Uh, he's my favorite person on the planet. I, I don't want to hurt anybody else's feelings, but he's my favorite. I, I help get him ready every morning, and when I'm getting him ready, I tell him, Coleman, you're the easiest person I'm going to deal with today. It's just going to get harder from here. For years, I put his seatbelt on. I thought I needed to. Uh, I would get him in his seat. I would grab the belt. I would reach over him and clip it in. Finally, a few years ago, my wife said, Tim, why, why do you keep putting his seatbelt on? Well, let him put his seatbelt on. And I said, really? She said, Coleman, put your seatbelt on. And he reaches up and he grabs it and he goes, click. And he, he's nonverbal. He communicates so much with his eyes. He looked at me like, Dad, it's really not that hard. It's, it's just a seatbelt. Some things are simple. God's not simple. 
Some things are easily comprehended. God is not one of them. Just look at what God has created. From the boundless cosmos to the smallest of living organisms, we find amazing complexity. Uh, just one example of this, this is a bogong moth. Uh, they are native to, to Australia. Just to make, let you know that they're not the little kind that flit around your lamps at night. These are like pterodactyl-sized moths. And uh, this is a wall covered with them. I'll explain that to you in just a second. It, it's estimated that in a square meter of these cave walls, roughly three feet by three feet uh, square, maybe as many as 17,000 uh, of these moths. They are thick. But, but the breeding ground for these moths is not in these caves uh, down in the Australian Alps. The breeding ground is in southern Queensland and in northern New South Wales. And in the, the hot summer months, they fly to these cool mountain caves over 600 miles away, 1,000 kilometers, where they hibernate through the summer months. Uh, and then about three months later, they return to their birthplace in the autumn to mate and to lay eggs and to die. Now, the, the life cycle of these moths is, is a year. They, they make this uh, round trip journey once in their life, but they're all brand new, billions of them. They've never done this before. They have brains the size of a grain of rice, which in the insect world is a huge brain. Most insects have a brain about the size of a pinhead. These have massive size brains of, of the size of a grain of rice. When are moths active at night? They're nocturnal. They're not navigating by the sun. Scientists best guess that maybe it's the Earth's magnetic field or maybe the alignment of the Milky Way in the night sky. These, these complex, simple little things fly a thousand kilometers to a place they've never been before and then make the journey back. Uh, from an article in the periodical Current Biology, Bogong moths pinpoint a tiny mountain cave over a thousand kilometers away, crossing terrain they've never crossed previously, locating a place they've never been to before. If a moth can be that complex, how complex is the God who created them? Why would we even begin to think that God's unity would be a simple unity, that it would be a monolithic unity. Monolith just means single stone. Some of you may remember uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. came out in 1968. There was a sequel to it, 2010, the year we made contact, that came out in, in 1984. I don't mind telling you how old I am. I was born in 1962, so when that movie came out that summer, I hadn't had my birthday yet that year. For some reason, my dad took me to see that movie when I was five years old. I just remember having dreams about it after I got back home. I had to see it much later in life to try to figure it out. So when the sequel came out in 1984, I was in college at the time. I took my dad to see that one. But you remember this, this black monolith in both of those movies. You know, if, if you took a chip from the upper left and a chip from the, the bottom right, it would be the same. It's one stone. It, it is undifferentiated through and through. I spent a couple of years in Australia, and um, about a month or so before I came back to the States after the two years, a friend and I took two weeks in his four-wheel drive and, and made a journey to Ayers Rock. 
I got to see Barry and Joe just a couple of months ago. I hadn't seen them in 32 years. Uh, and they made a visit to Tulsa, stayed, uh, stayed with us a, a few nights. But Ayers Rock isn't a mountain, it's a rock. It, it's one rock, it's a monolith, and it's a lot like an iceberg. There's more of it below ground level, uh, kind of like there's more of an iceberg below water level than, than above it. But you take a chip of Ayers Rock from anywhere and it is the same. It's undifferentiated. That's a simple unity. When people first started thinking about atomic structure, they thought it was simple. Uh, Democritus was a, a Greek philosopher, lived before Socrates and Aristotle and, and Plato. I'll just show some depictions of him and see if you can pick up on a the theme here. Most philosophers don't look like this. In, in all the... Uh, in all the depictions, he's grinning or he's laughing. He was called the laughing philosopher. He laughed at everything. He laughed at things he was supposed to. He laughed at things he wasn't supposed to. He laughed at the absurdity of life. Democritus wasn't laughing with us. He was laughing at us. Uh, he was laughing at, at all of us. He was laughing at life. But he famously said that nothing exists except atoms and empty space. Everything else is opinion. And his concept of the atom was of an invisible pellet. Atom comes from the Greek word atomos, uh, indivisible, uncuttable, undividable. Democritus thought you can take anything and you can cut it in half, and you can take that half and cut it in half. And you keep cutting those pieces in half until you get down to something that can't be cut anymore. It's indivisible. And that was the atomos, that was the atom. But his conception of it was like this little undifferentiated pellet. It was the same through and through. We know better than that now. Uh, for just the fact that he can conceive of them is, is impressive, but we know that atomic structure is highly complex. They are highly diverse units, and so is the unity of the God who created atoms. A brief statement of, of some of the tenets of this concept of a triune God, unity, diversity within unity. The Father is fully God in nature, in substance, in essence, but he is distinct in person from the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, the Son, is fully God in his essence, in his nature, who he is, and yet is distinct in person from the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is fully God in nature, in substance, in essence, and is distinct in person uh, from the, the Father and the Son. We don't have time to flesh all of that out tonight, but these statements try to express, in, in terms of, of truth, as best we can grasp it, uh, the, the, diverse, the diversity, the complexity that exists within the one God of heaven. God's unique oneness defies analogies. So just like I told you before, don't get frustrated or discouraged or be surprised that we have difficulty trying to comprehend this oneness of God. Similarly, um, we, we should understand why consistent analogies just seem to escape us. You know, some people have offered the egg. You know, the, the egg is a unit, and they say, okay, the, the egg has got a shell and a yolk and a white. True, but not the same essence, not the same stuff. 
not the same material. Uh, the, 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 the shell is made out of something different than the yoke. The yoke is made out of something different than the white. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share equally in the divine nature the same essence. Uh, same thing with the apple and, and the peel and the core and the seeds. They're all different in their nature. Some people offer up water as, as a means of helping us understand. Like water can be liquid or solid or vapor or, or gas. The problem is that, that the same amount can be any of those successively. Uh, whereas the Father is never the Son. The Son is never the Spirit. The Spirit is, is never the Father. And so that falls short as you would expect. Uh, this may be somewhat more helpful. Uh, some of you, when you first saw it, thought it might have been the flux capacitor from Back to the Future. It's kind of shaped kind of shaped like that. But basically saying that, that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, and yet the Father is fully a part of the divine nature. The Son is fully a part of the divine nature. The Holy Spirit is fully a part of the divine nature. That, that symbol that you had seen before, it's the most colorful representation of it. Uh, it's an old Celtic symbol, the triquetra, and I, I think it at least communicates better than the, the shamrock that, that St. Patrick offered up at one point as an illustration of God existing as, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sometimes you'll see this in another form with, with a circle intertwined through it, the, the Celtic Trinity knot. And sometimes representations, sometimes diagrams are helpful. I, I'm one who is sometimes fascinated by religious art, but a lot of the depictions, most of the depictions that try to represent Father, Son, and Holy Spirit end up communicating the wrong thing, especially representations like this. You know, if, if it communicates anything, it, it probably communicates that, that Father and Son are much alike, and it's almost like the old Sesame Street thing. One of these things is not like the others. And, and the poor Holy Spirit gets relegated. I think Jacob Hawk shared a message with you several, a few weeks ago on, on the Holy Spirit. It's like the Holy Spirit is something entirely different. And so I find depictions like, like this very unhelpful. Um, God has told us why all such analogies are inadequate. He's told us why they, they are destined to fall short and, and to fail. Isaiah 46, 9. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. There is nothing else in the cosmos. There is nothing else in existence that is like God. There is only one triune deity. There is only one God. And that's why we have difficulty with analogies. That's why we have difficulty even with, with statements about his triune nature. There's only one triune nature. There is only one God. It is one God in his fullness who created man in his own image and likeness. God in his fullness who from one man created all nations of the earth 
according to Acts chapter 17, verse 26, every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that belief, if you have faith in that statement, that that, then that has implications. Implications about our understanding and our value of all mankind who have been created in the image of the one God. That's why every form and expression of racial bias and bigotry and racism and prejudice and notions of racial su supremacy are abhorrent to the one God. They are an offense to His holiness and His nature and a moral shame and disgrace upon any of His people who harbor such attitudes and worldly demonic thinking. All mankind owes its existence to the one God. It is God in His fullness from whom we become separated by sin. It is God in His fullness who from the foundation of the world foreordained a plan for our redemption and ransom. It was the love of God in His fullness that prompted the Father to send the Son, the eternal Word enveloped in human flesh, to redeem us with His precious blood as a sacrificial lamb without spot and blemish, to make possible our ability to be born again, born of water and born of the life-giving Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives life, according to John 6, 63. John 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, by one Spirit, we've all been baptized into one body. You read through the book of Acts and you find people being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You read Matthew 28, 19, and we, we learn that in becoming disciples of Jesus Christ, we are baptized in submission to the power and authority of God in His fullness, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we sang beautiful songs of praise. Uh, before our, our message time tonight, brother, thank you for leading us in those songs of worship. We worship God in His fullness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is God in His fullness who grants us His divine grace and love and fellowship. I, I love this benediction, this salutation at the end of 2 Corinthians. Uh, very last verse, chapter 13, verse 14 the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We, we accept foundationally in our faith the fact that there is one God. And yet I, I never want us to lose that, that sense of, of God's majesty and, and His mystery and His might in the one God existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If His ways and thoughts are truly as far beyond ours as the heavens are above the earth, no wonder we struggle to understand. Uh, many of you, uh, I, I know that there are people tonight working with, with children's classes. Some of you may teach uh, at Vacation Bible School or on Sunday mornings or, or are in a rotation where sometimes on Wednesday night you're doing that. Uh, we have good friends back, back in Broken Arrow uh, who in a rotational basis, teach the, the three through five-year-olds. And, you know, when, you, when you're teaching them, you have to, to just bring it down to a different level. Um, it, it sounds different than the sermon. It sounds different than the adult Bible class. You're teaching the same truth, but you're explaining it at a, at a three-year-old uh, 
three-year-old's level of understanding. Understand that what God has revealed to us has, I don't mean to be uh, offensive to us or insulting to us, but God has dumbed it down so that we can understand. Uh, He has taken these universal truths, even truths about himself, and he's put it in language that, that we use, language that we can understand, and yet we'll forever be those, those three-year-olds looking up in wonder, in respect, in worship, in praise, in awe, in adoration at the God who created us in his image. And because our sin separated us from God in his fullness, God in his fullness acted that, that we might be saved. And again, I would expect at 7 o'clock on a Wednesday night in Abilene, Texas, in a building that on the sign says Church of Christ, I would imagine that most of you in here tonight have acted on your faith. You've turned from sin. You've confessed Jesus as the Son of God. You've made known the fact that you want Him to be Lord and Master and Ruler and and Sovereign in, in your life. You have submitted to His Word and His will and His command that you be immersed in water, uh, that the power of his blood might wash away your sins. That takes incredible faith. If I could leave you with one other thing tonight, it's be encouraged in the amount of faith that you have. I know that life gives us hard knocks. I know that sometimes things discourage us and, and doubt is sort of that flip side of the coin of faith and those always exist in tension. You have more faith than you give yourself credit for. You believe in a Savior that you've never personally seen. You believe in a God who created you and loves you, you, whom you have personally never seen. You've seen evidence of Him. You've seen His handiwork. You believe that there is something, a concept called sin, that when we do things that are outside the parameters of the will of this creating God and loving God, that it puts a moral stain on a part of us that we can't see. And we believe that that affects our relationship, distances us from our God. You have faith that the eternal word, the eternal son came in human flesh, lived the perfect life, laid down that life like a lamb without spot and without blemish so that the blood that he shed could take away that moral stain that we can't even see. That joy you felt when you came up out of the water, that was based on faith. You believed that God had done something, that God had acted, that God had washed away your sin and saved your soul. You live the way you live because you have incredible faith. Give yourself more credit than sometimes you give yourself credit for. We walk by faith, not by sight. And I think you're like me. I'm looking forward to the day when that faith becomes sight and we don't need it anymore. Uh, When either we pass on through the portal of death uh, to be with the Lord, or while we're still living, he returns uh, to deliver the kingdom to the Father. But if, if there's a chance that that is your faith, but you've not yet acted on it. I I know that this church family, I know that the shepherds of this congregation, uh, the ministers of this congregation, I I would be joyful, even though I may never have met you. I would join in their uh, rejoicing, in the rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God 
in your salvation. Again, life gives us difficulties, hard knocks. Jesus said, in the world you have tribulation. Be of good cheer, take courage, I've overcome the world. But for the rest of the journey, we're going to have to deal with those things. And often, they are more than we can handle by ourselves. And the beauty is, we don't have to. That's why God placed us in a family. That's why God added us to His church. That's why we're a part of a kingdom so that we can bear one another's burdens. We can share those times of joy, and we can share those times of sorrow as well. And if, if you brought some burden in here that was weighing on you and you alone, don't leave here with that weighing just on your heart. Let that load and that burden be shared by people who love you, people who care for you, people who want to help you. Whatever needs you may have, I know the shepherds, ministers, others of the congregation will be here to receive you as we're standing together and singing this song.